Welcome to another edition of the Fund for Innovation and Transformation, also known as FIT, podcast. My name is Beata Alonso, and I'm the Environmental Program Officer for FIT. For those who may not know, FIT is an innovation fund that supports small and medium-sized Canadian organizations testing innovative solutions to development challenges in the global south with the goal of improving the lives of women and girls and advancing gender equality. It is an initiative of the Inter-Council Network of Provincial and Regional Councils and is funded by Global Affairs Canada. FIT also supports SMOs to design and monitor their innovation test through an environmental sustainability lens, ensuring the integration of a do-no-harm approach, risk mitigation, and capitalization of environmental opportunities. In this podcast, you will learn about the pre-Columbian sustainable development practices by Indigenous peoples in the Amazon forest. To innovate, sometimes we need to look back. Dispelling the assumption of an untouched wilderness, we will share the research of archaeologist and PhD Jennifer Watling and the evidence of large, diverse, and socially complex pre-Columbian societies in many regions of the Amazon basin. Integrating with nature rather than dominating it, agroforestry and resource management practices created edible forests. Some of the topics covered during today's podcast include Jennifer's research, findings about the environmental context of geoglyph construction in the Amazon forest, and the nature, extent, and legacy of associated human impacts. Secondly, how sustainable pre-Columbian forest management practices are upheld by Indigenous and traditional communities today. And finally, we'll link it with today's innovations and find out if there are any lessons learned for today's uh, climate action innovators. So let's get started. I want to introduce Jennifer Watling. Jennifer is an archaeologist specializing in the integration of plant microfossil analysis to understand plant resource use, cultivation, and landscape transformation in pre-Columbian Amazonia. She got her undergrad, master's, and PhD diplomas from the University of Exeter, UK, and then went on to do a postdoctorate at the University of Sao Paulo, where she is currently a collaborating researcher. She has mainly worked in southwestern Amazonia, publishing on topics such as the environmental impact of earthwork builders on the long-term history of plant resource use through the middle to late Holocene periods. Jennifer's eventual goal is to combine archaeological and paleoecological data with Indigenous and traditional knowledge to advance current conservation debates in the Amazon. So, Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's jump right in. So tell us about your research on the impact of pre-Columbian geoglyph builders on Amazonian forests. What are they and what is their legacy of associated human impacts? And perhaps I should start talking about what are geoglyphs, right? So, so geoglyphs are archaeological sites and they're found in Eastern Acre State. So um, Acre is a state in Brazil. It's located in Western Amazonia and it borders both Peru and Bolivia. And the eastern part of this state, uh, so it's quite a large state, is where lots of these um, archaeological sites called geoglyphs have been discovered. So geoglyph sites uh, consist of kind of geometric shapes, right, which are better seen from the air than they are from the ground, and that's why they're called geoglyphs, a bit like the kind of Nazca lines, right, in Peru. These are made of kind of geometric shapes, so, so largely circles and squares and combinations of these different designs. And these are actually carved out of the earth by, by these pre-Columbian populations, so they make kind of ditches 
in these shapes. And these ditches, as we've excavated them, can be up to like 11 meters wide, up to three meters deep, really monumental things. And then the earth that was kind of excavated from the ditches was often put around the outside to, to form a kind of bank. So you have like a ditch and then an outside bank in these, these different shapes. And some of these sites can reach up to quite massive proportions, like 350 meters in diameter. And over 500 of them have actually been discovered until today in this quite small region of Eastern Acre, and then also in a few other Brazilian states in uh, Amazonas and Rondonia, we also find some examples. Perhaps the most surprising thing about these sites, um, apart from, you know, <laughs> the fact that they exist at all, uh, is that they were only discovered in the late 1980s by uh, Alceu Hernzi, who is a, a paleontologist who works at the Federal University of Acre in Rio Branco. And he just discovered these sites by chance, really. So, so he was flying, he was in an airplane flying over this region um, in the late 80s and then sort of found these mysterious kind of shapes coming up out of the earth and sort of asked, you know, what are they? Because there was nothing recorded about them at the time. And then he started making um, subsequent, um, more frequent flights over this area and started recording more and more of these things. And the reason why they were only discovered, you know, so so late in the late 80s um, is because of deforestation. So, so this whole region was deforested on a massive scale in the kind of late 80s, also in, in the early 80s. Then that was linked to, to these kind of governmental programs of trying to, to colonize the Amazon, basically. So it was a time of quite large population movements from, from the rest of Brazil to these kind of frontier Amazonian states. And that took with it, um, had all these environmental consequences of deforestation. So the geoglyphs is actually that they'd lay hidden under intact forests for over 1,000 years. So uh, Alceu Hernsey, he soon contacted archaeologists, both from within Brazil and uh, also from Finland. And they started excavating these, these sites and found that most of them are actually dated from kind of the end of the first millennium BC until around uh, 1200 AD. And so uh, where I come into the story is that in 2010, uh, I just come out of my master's degree at the University of Exeter and um, studying ancient field systems in French Guiana. And this was under the supervision of José Ariarte. And José had just got a project with Denise Shan, who was the principal archaeologist to work in the Geoglyph region, to study the environmental history of these sites. And that became my PhD project. The questions that I was asking as part of this project had exactly to do with the, the enigma of how these sites became hidden under the rainforest after so long. So did that mean that these groups, that the geoglyph builders cleared the forest to build the geoglyphs, but then later when they abandoned them, that the forest was able to regenerate? Or was it that the vegetation was once actually very different? Could it have been that they were built in a savanna environment, for instance? So further south in Bolivia, we have kind of similar-ish sites. There was some research we conducted there that showed that these sites had been constructed within, within savanna-type landscapes, so no one had to cut down trees to, to build these sites. And we thought perhaps that would be the same in Acre. Or if it, you know, or if it had been deforested, what kind of scale of deforestation are we looking at? Are we looking at quite localized deforestation, or were these different sites actually kind of intervisible? Like, could you see another site from one site's location? And also, what was the legacy of these, these impacts that the people had on the vegetation? And so to, to try and answer that, we, we tried this kind of novel um, method, really, of, of trying to reconstruct the, the environment through uh, analysis of soil profiles. You can imagine we dug several um, pits into the earth 
that measure kind of one by one and a half meters, like a square, and then about one and a half meters deep. And then we took like the, the profile or one of the walls of these pits, and then we sampled them uh, every five or 10 centimeters for several proxies. So, so one of those is phytoliths, microscopic silica plant remains. These things are super durable, survive in soils for a long time. And their kind of 3D morphologies, their shapes and sizes are, are diagnostic of the plants that produce them. And then we looked at also charcoal. So we quantified uh, the amount of charcoal that is in these samples. Uh, and that gives us an idea basically of how intense the use of fire was on this landscape. So how often were people burning the vegetation? And then also uh, some other proxies such as stable carbon isotopes and then um, other material to be able to date the soil profiles, because that was really important for us to be able to compare these different things uh, with depth, right, in, in these soil profiles, um, but to be able to have these dates to say exactly when these changes would have occurred. About our outcomes, so we found that it was indeed forested, so, so it wasn't a savanna, actually, but it was actually a specific type of forest that, you know, that most people wouldn't even associate with Amazonia. So it's a type of forest called bamboo forest. This is a type of rainforest whereby um, there's a singular species of bamboo that is kind of monodominant in this, this vegetation. And it kind of makes for a, a slightly more open type of rainforest. So the bamboo actually inhibits the growth of a lot of tall trees. And it also, at times, it can even act to kind of tear trees down because it's very aggressive. It's this kind of woody bamboo with spikes that also, <laughs> that also hurt your head if you bump into them. This was super interesting for us because this bamboo forest is still the kind of dominant vegetation type in Acre today. And we also were thinking about the kind of the ecology of this landscape. So could the bamboo forest have actually helped these populations with the, the deforestation process, right? Because uh, these are super interesting ecosystems whereby you have kind of these big populations of, of bamboo, like discrete populations that cover some kind of like several kilometers in area. And every kind of 25 to 30 years, these individual populations, they'll all kind of uh, flower and die at the same time, kind of, kind of simultaneously. And that creates kind of vast swathes of forest whereby, you know, you have a lot of dead bamboo. And we thought, well, perhaps in the dry season, if this large of bamboo dies, and in the dry season, you can uh, set fire to it. And then you'd have almost a kind of <laughs> a much easier time clearing a large area. But despite this, I mean, the, the most surprising thing was that we didn't actually find a huge deforestation signal um, linked with the geoglyph building. So we could see some kind of, you know, clearance activities. We had peaks in charcoal, some kind of small peaks in grasses, but not really um, anything that would suggest a really long lasting open landscape. What we'd expect is that we'd get in the phytolith suddenly like a, a dip in tree species, and then we'd get um, the dominance of grass phytoliths, right, which invade these open areas for a long time. But we didn't find that. And what we found instead was this kind of clear pattern of um, increase in palm phytoliths during this time. And this increase in palm phytoliths we found only in the location of the archaeological sites. So we did dig these soil pits both within the geoglyph sites and also far away from them to be able to compare, right, what was the signal within and outside of these sites. And what we found was a really clear association between palm phytoliths and the time that the geoglyphs were built and used. And that suggested to us um, straight away that this could be an indication of, of ancient forest management. 
So, so palm trees are really important resources for modern day Amazonian communities. So as well as having really edible fruits, you know, the fruits can also be used to make um, alcoholic beverages. And a lot of groups do that today. Also, their, their wood is a really good construction material. And also uh, their leaves are often used as thatching the roofs of indigenous houses, or they can be used for basketry or, or a number of other, of other uses. And also they have medicinal uses. And it's really interesting because we, we really find palms everywhere in archaeological sites in Amazonia. And we're talking about, you know, even the very oldest sites, you know, 10,000, 12,000 years ago. What we find always is that people were consuming palm. Again, the correlation with the geoglyphs really suggested that we were looking at uh, a sign of human disturbance in, in this sense. And at this point, I should probably say something about the phytoliths again. So um, phytolith analysis is really good because phytoliths are, as I said, really durable. They survive in soils for long periods of time. But there are a lot of species and mainly tree species that either don't produce phytoliths or don't produce very diagnostic ones. So uh, you won't be able to detect uh, a lot of specific trees, basically, if they were there in the past. And this is problematic for us because there are over 85 species of domesticated trees in, in Amazonia or, or tree species that are on that have some degree of domestication. But what we do find is that specific vegetation formations will, also, will produce specific assemblages of phytoliths that can distinguish them from other types of vegetation. And so the Jacosar site geoglyph that we worked at had been almost completely deforested for cattle grazing, but there were still small patches of forest very close by the geoglyph. And so we went to these forests and we did uh, botanical inventories. We were able to show that there, there were actually a very large number of useful species in this plot, much, much greater proportions than what you'd expect from a non-cultural forest, let's say. Um, and there's not just palms, but also, you know, a, a lot of other these tree species that don't produce diagnostic phytoliths. So we did an experiment where we collected uh, the surface soils from underneath this vegetation. And then we looked at the phytolith assemblages and compared the assemblages with those found in the soil profiles at the time of the geoglyphs. And what we found was a really close match. And so this then also supported the idea that apart from palms, you know, people were exploiting a lot of other useful species. And that, you know, that, that there's still relics of these practices in, in the forest that still stand today. And then the final, you know, big finding, perhaps the most important, is that we found that the, the signal of modern deforestation, which is about 40 years worth um, at this site, was actually much bigger in our soil profiles than anything that we found in the past. So we found that grass phytoliths, charcoal, everything sort of went through the roof really in, in, in the surface samples that represent the modern day land use. And this contrast made us really think about uh, differences between past and present land use practices, because we realised that, you know, while modern agricultural policy in, in the Amazon destroys the forest without ever using it, you know, and even see it as a barrier to progress, Indigenous people in the past were able to both live off the forest, you know, and even enhance its utility while also preserving it for future generations. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in terms of the linkage of how these pre-Columbian sustainable forest management practices, what kind of link do they have to today's practices by Indigenous and traditional communities? It sounds like a kind of radical idea, this, this idea of, of people converting one type of forest to another type of forest, right? Because we always imagine that to live in a forest, you have to cut some of it down. <laughs> That's mm. just how we think about this. Yeah, but it's been recognized now for a while that in indigenous groups today do exactly that. If you were to look at sort of aerial maps 
of the Amazon, specifically in, in this area that we call the arc of deforestation, which Acre is also part of. We have uh, Acre, Hondonia, Mato Grosso, this whole kind of swathe of, of forest in the southern limit of the Amazon basin, which has been most heavily impacted by deforestation. Wherever you see like a, a green patch, basically, it's an indigenous territory. It's really been proven, you know, that that these indigenous lands are kind of the last barriers to deforestation, really, buffer zones to, to warn it off. And it's worth just mentioning for a second, you know, because this could be interpreted through, through different eyes. So, so the association, you know, between indigenous lands and standing vegetation um, has long been misinterpreted to mean that, you know, indigenous people just don't mess with nature. So this idea that indigenous people are somehow unobtrusive to nature, and this has its roots kind of deep in the colonial area with the kind of romanticized view of the noble savage, you know, living in pristine, untouched wilderness. I mean, if you think about it, the, the first explorers, you know, the European explorers that, that came over to the tropics to document its biodiversity and the people that lived here, they had no idea what they were looking at. So, so they just saw like a wall of green, abundant biodiversity, and they had no idea what, you know, between an anthropogenic and a natural forest looked like. Uh, and even, you know, to the, to the trained eye often, <laughs> it's still quite difficult sometimes to, to, to really understand that. And it was only in the 1980s, um, really, that, that Western scholars began to understand that this isn't at all the case. They began paying attention to indigenous subsistence practices, you know, and documenting not just like the, the massive number of species often that the, these groups know and use and often manage, but also that the many sophisticated and sometimes really subtle ways that these people alter their biodiversity to suit their needs. So there's been a lot of work done on this since and tomes and tomes been written about it. But um, the key thing is that they do this while maintaining ecosystem services. So the interventions that they make very rarely prohibit eventual forest regeneration because they see that as crucial for the health of the forest and for the, the health of their culture even because they depend upon these forests and their ecosystem services, right? And often that the very process of regeneration is, is closely accompanied by, by these populations. That they'll often continue to manage kind of abandoned fields for years and years afterwards, encouraging different types of tree species. But this misconception, you know, that, that started way back in the day of this kind of pristine wilderness um, is still propagated by policymakers today. Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, here we are today in a global climate crisis, and some say that we have 10 years left to stop and somewhat reverse the global warming um, projections. So what can innovators learn from these sustainable Indigenous practices? The effects of global warming are, are you know, are a whole other topic. That a lot of people are super worried about in Amazonia. What's happening is actually you're getting a kind of positive feedback in a lot of cases between the effects of like deforestation and climatic warming. So both processes are creating this really rapid drying out of, of the rainforest and increasing the likelihood of wildfires, which are also, you know, in a lot of cases mm -hmm. actually <laughs> politically stimulated, unfortunately, um, in, in the present day context. So really have to think about the kind of the integrity of the forest and the integrity of the traditional peoples. One of the first things that we need to think about is, is rethinking what we, what we think of as protected areas, right? So, so at least in Brazil, where I mainly work, you know, that there are different types of protection areas. So there's Resex and Rebio. A Hezex is an extractive reserve and a Rebio is like a biological reserve. And in the first type, you know, traditional indigenous communities are, are allowed to 
continue their kind of sustainable practices. But in the biological reserves, human habitation is completely prohibited, right? So you get time and time again, these communities are kicked out of their occupied territories to create these reserves. And that completely ignores the fact that the very biodiversity that they're seeking to preserve was actually co-constructed by these people, and not just by these people, but also their ancestors, right? And you have really a similar situation um, by the national parks as well in, in the US. You know, when they were started in the 19th century, indigenous people were kicked off the land, and then that actually had a whole effect on the ecosystem. It actually changed the biodiversity that they were trying to conserve. In terms of you know, how we think about dealing with, with the climate, um, I, I think it's the same way as we try and deal with, uh, with the sustainability problems that we've sort of mentioned um, and I think in, in this case, it's really appropriate to mention a, a project that I'm working with uh, called the Science Panel for the Amazon, which is a kind of working group of the United Nations um, composed of a lot of different scientists. And basically what we're soon going to publish a, a dossier in the next couple of months, which had exactly this objective, right, to, to, to understand what can um, innovators learn, what can innovators implement in, in terms of the current crisis. So the, the dossier looks at, you know, the, the whole background um, to biodiversity in the Amazon, geology, biology, archaeology, which is where we come in, and then looks at the current threats to that. So climate change, all these really destructive land use practices, and then makes recommendations for the future. You know, what's really important to, to know is that all the recommendations converge. That the, the singular most important thing for the future of the Amazon is incorporating indigenous practices into current land use models. And that's kind of the only viable alternative that there is <laughs> to what's going on today. And, and first, you know, how, well, how do we do that? Well, firstly, we have to really respect um, both the individual and collective rights of, of these societies, indigenous and traditional societies. And this respect is, is obviously going to lead to more dialogue um, to try and incorporate their, their knowledge into, into public policy. Because the, the knowledge is there, right? We just have to make mm -hmm. that step to kind of tap into it and actually apply it. And also what's really important is their right to self-govern. So not just their territories, um, but also themselves, because they're the ones that know what to do. So, <laughs> And they need the independence to be able to do that. And also, it's not just a case of like ending these extractive um, economic activities that degrade the ecosystems, but also the local communities. But also, we have to offer viable economic alternatives to forest peoples, such as payment for ecosystem services, technical support to intensifying um, their sustainable practices, and agroforestry production, you know, linking them up with external markets, trying to facilitate them to be successful in doing what they're doing. Because a lot of the time, um, no matter how much they might not want to, they get dragged in. Like, um, a lot of rural communities will get often get dragged into like local uh, mining activities or logging because that's the only viable alternative in their region. And then there's this really interesting idea that... Um, I think it's really important as well as innovations or, or ideas that can try and strengthen the idea of an Amazonian citizenship, right? So that, that everybody across the biome, whether indigenous, traditional society, or someone that lives in an urban centre, because that's another thing that we don't really think about as well, right? Is that, that there's massive cities in the Amazon, <laughs> and the people in the cities have their own needs and their own, you know, challenges. So I'm trying to kind of really unite 
all types of, of, of communities um, and educate them to both know and value how to take care of the biodiversity that's on their doorstep, basically. So trying to create alliances and, and these kind of networks. And part of that is also gender empowerment. So creating more equal opportunities for women as well within the Amazon. That was also one of the big outcomes from the SPA and so, yeah, it's really strategies along those kind of lines um, that innovators really need to be to be thinking about. That's what you know, that, that's what the current um, knowledge is telling us. Absolutely. I think there's a lot to think about here. And I really hope that some of this inspires future fit applicants and innovators to to take a look at, you know, how to tackle this climate crisis in, in their testing area and what kind of partnerships they can establish with uh, Indigenous or traditional communities. I think there's a lot more we can do there. So I'll leave it at that. There's a lot more. I mean, I can continue listening to you um, for a couple of hours here, but I think we'll need to end it here. And I'll make sure to include the link to your research for those who want to dive a little bit deeper. So thank you so, so much, Jennifer, for your time and for sharing your research on sustainable environmental practices of pre-Columbian societies and how they can inform and inspire today's innovators to, you know, creating a more just and sustainable world. To our listeners, I hope you learned a little bit about Indigenous history and the ways in which Indigenous history and continued sustainable practices can drive innovative climate action today. To find out more about FIT innovators and how they've integrated environmental sustainability into their testing methodologies, uh, you can visit our website at fit-fit.ca for stories and lessons learned and resources. So we invite you to to keep in touch and uh, thank you again, Jennifer, for this podcast. And yeah, we look forward to uh, seeing your future research as well. So thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.